Well, we are almost a year. Can you believe it? Quite almost a year into this pandemic. And I wonder how it's uh, changed you, and in particular, how it might have changed your view of the future. Maybe uh, you're starting to ask questions such as, how will a year like the one that's just gone and, and the future affect my children? Or thinking, uh, for the first time, perhaps things won't ever go back to the way they once were. Perhaps you're just stuck with a general sense of unease. Um, after all, couldn't this just happen again with a different virus or a new mutation? I mean, what kind of future can we look forward to? John Gray is a British philosopher, one-time professor here in London at LSE, and back in 2003, he wrote a book entitled Straw Dogs. He said it was a, a book written to disturb, and his big idea? Well, quite simply this, that if we believe that this world is little by little going to become a better place, then we're kidding ourselves. That's uh, just a naive, over-optimistic idea. Gray is an atheist, and he's glad that, as he puts it, we've shaken off Christian faith. But now he suggests we need to shake off our faith in human nature, human goodness. Because, as he sees it, animals are not radically different animals. Sorry, humans are not radically different animals. He thinks uh, we're wrong to replace an irrational faith in God with an irrational faith in humanity, our new secular religion. He says, just take a look at human history, and you'll see. It's not even that we're like animals. We're actually worse, because we uniquely, he says, are weapon-making animals, with an unquenchable fondness for killing. I have to say, I I feel quite relieved that I'm socially distanced from uh, John Gray. I'm not sure quite how we'd get on, but step into the ring a second professor, a man by the name of Stephen Pinker, and he's the patron saint of optimistic humanism. In 2018, he wrote a book entitled Enlightenment Now, and he wants you and I to put aside our worries about the world. It's not perfect, but things really are getting better all the time. He suggests we take a look at the evidence, and his book is full of table after table and graph after graph, tracking how when it comes to health and wealth, inequality, environment, peace, democracy, and so on, he suggests that for the last 200 years, life has been getting better for each generation. In fact, Bill Gates likes this book so much that he describes it as my new favorite book of all time. So I wonder whose side that you're on. Are you hopeful about the future? Uh, is COVID just a, a blip in the stats? Is this the best of times or the worst of times to be alive? My problem is that I find plenty of evidence pointing us in either direction at one and the same time. Yes, compared to my grandparents' generation, I'm sure I'm much better off. And yet I get what Greta is saying about a planet under threat. Who is the winner in this debate, Professor Gray or Professor Pinker? Well, I want to suggest you perhaps won't be surprised. We need to take something of a step back because looking at what we can see or just measuring 
according to the statistics, won't quite give us the picture and the perspective we need. Because, you see, our future is not and never has been in our hands. It's in the hands of the God who made us. And we need, therefore, to let God speak to us in our circumstances through His living Word, the Bible, to give us the perspective we need to properly understand our today and our tomorrow. And that brings us nicely back to the book of Zechariah that you've been looking at in recent weeks. And I'm sure you know by now, it's a book written about 520 BC before the time of Christ to those first exiles who returned to Jerusalem after the devastating invasion and destruction by the Babylonian armies of their city and country in 587 BC. And at the heart of the book is that question in the introduction, now that you have returned to the land, will you also return to me? God offers his wayward people this wonderful reassurance about their future right at the start. This is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me. Chapter 1, verse 3, declares the Lord Almighty, and if you return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Those words are profound and precious, aren't they? Because they offer the reassurance that, that if we return to God with our hearts, He will be ready always to receive us. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, even this morning, why would God want anything to do with me after the week I've just had, after the life that I've lived? But Zechariah is telling us that our God is that forgiving God, a God not only of second but third and fourth and fifth chances. And if you come in a spirit of repentance, this book is telling us God will not turn you away. Return to me and I will return to you. And the book then goes on to present those eight visions. Not the easiest to understand, are they? From chapter 1, verse 7 to partway through our passage today, chapter 6 and verse 8. But grasp what they're saying, and I think they're hugely encouraging, aren't they? Because they are written to give us hope and a future. There's this call to, to rebuild the temple and to enjoy a newly restored relationship with God as their God. And the eight visions, as I think you know, are paired, moving from the outside in. So vision 1 goes with 8, 2 with 7, 3 with 6, and then in the center chapters 4, uh, visions 4 and 5. And it's quite easy to spot that 1 and 8 belong together as bookends, because if you were here when you looked at that first vision in chapter 1, you'll spot the theme, won't you? Horsemen who ride horses of different colors roaming the earth. And if you know your Bible, and the book of Revelation in particular, you'll have spotted that theme that is in that book there too as well. These horsemen, we read in chapter 1 and verse 10, are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they picture for us in that opening chapter that God has his eye on the ball, that nothing that happens ever escapes his attention. He's very aware of everything that is happening in his world and to his people. It's good to know, isn't it? In this sort of crazy lockdown world, facing an uncertain future that God sees everything. And now in chapter 6, we return to the picture, and now it's, though, not just horsemen who are sort of 
taking notes of what is going on, but now we have chariots ready for battle. Verse 1, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. And what God is saying to us through this is that God not only knows what is going on, chapter 1, but God is in control and sovereign over what will happen too. The reason, you see, we don't have to choose between Professor Gray and Professor Pinker's view of the world is because the future really is in God's hands. Verse 5, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, the one with the dappled horses towards the south. And here in chapter 6, you see, God is now sending chariots, charioteers, to bring judgment on the enemies of God's people. To the north, the Babylonians and the Assyrians that have so often oppressed God's people, and the enemy to the south, Egypt. So here I suggest is the lesson of the two visions in chapter 1 and now in 6. Look, the world really is a place full of violence and injustice. But in the midst of it all, God speaks a word of reassurance to his people. That chapter 1, he takes note of all that happens. And chapter 6, one day all his foes will be subdued to the north to the west, to the east, to the south. And when Zechariah saw these visions, it wasn't obvious to him by looking at the world that that God really was in control, wandering around the streets of Jerusalem in 520 BC, and you could be forgiven for thinking that God had abandoned his people. Walk around the streets of London today as part of your daily exercise, of course, and you can see all the evidence you need that our world is still a world of pain and fragmentation, of pain and oppression. The Times journalist uh, Bernard Levin once announced in his newspaper column that he was on his way to Christmas Island, never to return. And he said in in the article, I'm choosing Christmas Island because it's the most remote inhabited place in the world. Just one ship arrives and only once a year. Levin said he'd already asked the postmaster on the island to burn any letters addressed to him without even opening them, and to ban all British newspapers. And what, he writes, you ask, has brought about this powerful urge to misanthropy. And he says it is that yet another bundle of papers from Amnesty International has landed on my desk And after listing a catalogue of atrocities, he ends, how much wickedness can the world stand? This is not a cry of despair, but a wish to know, says Levin, because I now begin to believe that at some point in the future, the world will be drowned in evil, and evil will rule the world. But our great confidence as Christians, the reason we're full of hope is that one day soon the will of God will be seen to be done. God not only sees all, but he judges all, chapter 6. And the history of our world 
is one in which God still raises up nations and brings them to nothing. And on that great and final day, when the Lord Jesus returns, all of God's enemies will finally meet him as their judge. And that is a great word of comfort to Christians all over the world. But it's also a word of warning to us if we're not sure whether God is our friend. For you see, to God, for God to establish a world where we're at peace with one another, the world first needs to be at peace with God. It's only His rule that can ultimately bring order to our chaos. Without God at the center of our lives and of our world, well, life is just dog-eat-dog. It's a popularity contest or a power contest to see who says the way things go. And all of life is reduced to my will against yours as individuals, as families, as communities, as nations. Without a center, things cannot hold. So the world we all want, a world of peace, can only be brought about by God establishing his rule and bringing to an end human rebellion. And there are only two ways in which he can do that. God can end a rebellion by offering an amnesty, in which he invites his enemies to become his friends. And the great news is that all over the world, God is overcoming evil by turning enemies into friends. And the church is where we come if we seek peace, to be reconciled to God. And then God, of course, will finally establish his peaceful reign and kingdom through the defeat and destruction of all those who refuse the terms of the amnesty he offers. So if you're not sure you could call God a friend, if you've never thought what it means to accept his gracious rule in your life, then do contact someone here at Inspire St. James, and I know they would very much like to help you to be reconciled to God. And for the church family, well, this passage is a reminder again, isn't it, that time is short and that we have the awesome responsibility as individual churches together through the London Project, whatever it might be, of being agents of reconciliation, urging the world to take up the terms of peace that God offers. And that brings us to the second half of the chapter. The visions have come to an end, verse 8. And these closing verses of chapter 6, 9 to 15 sort of function as a, a kind of conclusion. And I want us to see three things very briefly that were already introduced to us in that excellent children's talk a few moments ago. You see, as we look at these verses 9 to 15, we firstly discover that there is the crown. Did you notice that? That's telling us that a new king is coming. Verse 9, the word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles who have arrived from Babylon. Verse 11, take the silver and gold and make a crown. Exiles had returned with this precious metals. They'd probably been collected in exile to help rebuild the temple. But now, verse 11, this crown is to be set on the head of, well, where do crowns go? They go on the heads of rulers, obviously. Now, Judah didn't have a king. It was ruled by a foreign ruler, the king of Persia, but it had a governor, Zerubbabel, and you met him in chapter 3, and he's the one that God has charged to rebuild the temple, and Zerubbabel was descended from great King David, and he was grandson of Judah's last king before the exile. 
But here's the surprise, verse 11. God says, set the crown not on the head of Zerubbabel, but on Joshua, the high priest. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that according to the law, a king cannot be a priest, and a priest can't be a king because kings come from the line of David and priests from the line of Levi. So it was impossible to be priest and king. So what's going on? Would you believe some commentators, as they scratch their head with this, have suggested maybe Zechariah uh, made a mistake. Maybe this is a typo, and he meant to write Zerubbabel, but put Joshua. I think that's a pretty extraordinary conclusion. It's also unnecessary, because the best way to proceed is to recognize that the text is pointing us to a completely new thing. We're meant to do a double-take, in other words, The crown that is set on Joshua's head is a picture of the future, what God will one day do. The Bible has a term for it. It's called prophetic symbolism. It wasn't that Joshua was really being crowned, but God is telling us that someday in the future, someone was coming who would be both king and priest. Read on in verse 14, and you see that the crown is quickly taken off Joshua, placed inside the temple as a memorial. And every time people saw the crown, they'd remember the future. And the clue that this is what's really going on for us is there in verse 12. Because here a name is given to the person who will wear the crown. Verse 12, tell him, that is Joshua, what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will build the temple of the Lord. So from a crown to the branch, he will bring salvation. Someone called the branch will lead God's people, and he's going to be both a king and a priest And if you know the book of Jeremiah and chapter 23, you'll know that he's mentioned there as well. 23 verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and who will do what is just and right in the land. In the day Judah, sorry, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. The priest king, the branch, is someone coming to save God's people. And we meet him in Isaiah 2, don't we? Isaiah 2, chapter 11, and verse 1, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. We call this man Messiah. And his name, of course, is Jesus. As our high priest, he made the perfect sacrifice when he sacrificed himself on the cross to take away the sins of the land in a single day. And as our forever king, he will establish his righteous rule over the earth for all time. And Zechariah tells us, verse 13, this king will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the kings and the priests, between the two. Do you see how time and again in the Old Testament we're introduced to these types and shadows, prophets and priests and kings? And here is one of the clearest clues in Scriptures that they will all find their fulfillment in one person, Jesus. I love the third verse of John Newton's, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Verse 3, O Jesus, shepherd, guardian, friend, 
my prophet, priest, king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Jesus is everything, the fulfillment of every type, every shadow, every hope, every promise, and the people of Judah must have scratched their heads wondering what was going on. They could hardly imagine what we now know in Jesus, a crown for a new king, a branch who will save, very briefly, a temple for the nations, finally. The priest-king will be the one who builds the true temple of God. And of course, Jesus was that temple. He was the place where God dwelt. If you wanted to draw near to God, you came to God through Jesus and faith in Him. And as we come to Jesus, so we find ourselves being added to the temple. Jesus, the cornerstone, and we living stones built on Him. And the great encouragement with which this chapter ends is that there is a day promise, verse 15, when those who are far away will come and help to build the temple. And we, in a sense, are the fulfillment of that verse. If we're Christians here today, then we are temple builders. And one of the great privileges of living in London is that you not only to get to live in the most diverse city in the world today, that would be a proud enough boast, but actually you are living in the most diverse city in the history of the world. And God has brought the nations to our city that together we might be added to Jesus and be a temple in which God lives for his glory. May it be so. So as we close, I return to that question. Are you pessimistic or optimistic when it comes to the future? Well, what does God say? What perspective does he bring to us through Zechariah? I think we have reasons to be glad, to be confident, even in this season of lockdown. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I know that all of God's promises to Zechariah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God is the promise-making and promise-keeping God, and we can trust him and build for his future. Let's pray together. Father, your word does indeed contain scriptures that at times are hard to understand, but thank you that living this side of the cross and resurrection, we step back and marvel at what you have deemed to do in and through your kingly priest, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has saved us and now rules and reigns over us and is building his temple to your praise and glory. And we share in that work with you. Thank you for the encouragement, not only from the past, but the hope that you have given for our future in Christ. Amen.